Welcome to BioEpic, the podcast that delves into people's lives and their impact on our world. In each monthly episode, we focus on one particular individual from our special collection of biographies at Kenson Central Library. It's our Christmas edition today, so in the spirit of the season, we have decided to focus on Charles Dickens. My name is Katie Williams. I am a service delivery manager at Kensington Central Library. Today, I'm really pleased to be joined by Claudia Jessup, who is responsible for our biography store collection. Hello, Claudia. Hi, Katie. Hello. Great. And we are also super delighted that we are being joined on our podcast today by Joe Gardner from the Museum of London and formerly of the Charles Dickens Museum at Dickens's former home in Doughty Street in Camden. Hello, Joe. Hello. You're very welcome to the podcast. So Charles Dickens, uh, arguably the most famous of all English novelists. Uh, his appeal has endured since his career began almost 200 years ago. That's a long career. We can't possibly cover such an enormous subject in our short podcast, but we wanted to look at a particular facet of Dickens, which is his role in relation to the way people celebrate Christmas and his authorship of the seasonal classic, A Christmas Carol. It's been a very difficult year for all of us. Many of us are experiencing Christmas in a very different way from how we normally would. And it's very hard being away from those who would have hoped to spend the season with. But we think there is something very comforting about revisiting A Christmas Carol. So much has changed this year. It's reassuring that between the pages of A Christmas Carol, first published 177 years ago, nothing has changed. Scrooge still follows the same journey from misanthropic isolation to love for his fellow humans. We hope you will enjoy escaping into a different world and finding out a little bit more about the man who created it by looking at some biographies that put him in his Christmas context. So we're going to begin with a very quick whirlwind summary of Charles Dickens's life. Charles Dickens was simply a colossus of Victorian literature a real international literary superstar in his own lifetime. Dickens was born in Portsmouth in 1812 and the family subsequently moved to London and Kent and back to London. His own education was interrupted when he had to go and work in a blacking factory aged 12 because his father was sent to a debtor's prison. This experience informed his later work as, as he had first-hand experience of poverty, criminality, socially marginalised people, prison, child labour, all of which he wrote about in his great novels. He founded and edited the weekly journal Household Words for 20 years, and he wrote 15 novels originally in serial form and five novellas, including the four Christmas books of which A Christmas Carol was the first. As well as many stories and articles, he lectured and performed readings, he wrote vast numbers of letters, of which we have 12 volumes of in our own collection. He was a very important campaigner for social reform, for the rights of the vulnerable, including children, all of which concern is, of course, very evident in A Christmas Carol. He even set up his own refuge for what would have been called fallen women. He died in 1870, aged 58. So we have an enormous range of Dickens' books in the collection. 
Claudia, I was going to ask you, how many do we have? What is the oldest one? I'm giving you a barrage of questions now. Yeah, that's all right. What's the weirdest, quirkiest one? Am I particularly intrigued by this inscription from Henry Dickens? Yes, well, um, we do have an enormous number of books on Dickens in the collection. Altogether, we've got 139 books, actually, on him. Because obviously, over the, over the decades, um, he's been the subject of all kinds of, of different sorts of biographies um, and you know there are biographies that that tell a sort of uh, conventional kind of narrative of his life you know from from the beginning to the end and then there are lots of biographies that look at specific um, aspects of his life so Dickens and his childhood Dickens and the theatre um, his relationship with London which was obviously really really important his role as a social reformer his relationships with women and then also one of the great things about the biography collection is if you're interested in a person you can then also branch off into looking at the people around them so there are lots of biographies of the very significant people in his lives as well um, and uh, we've got some very early books you know some of the earliest biographies that were written about him in the 1870s and those tend to have really beautiful engraved illustrations which were very typical of that time and then books that go right up until one that we're going to be looking at in in a moment um which was only published three years ago um so yes you were you were mentioning about the henry dickens that was his son um and i happened to mention a little gem of a book that we've got which is Henry Dickens's memoir called Memories of My Father. We've got a lovely edition from 1928 and in it I found an inscription from Henry Dickens and he's written a little note in pencil saying that he wrote it um, on his father's own writing desk um, which is great and one of the most curious ones which again I hope we'll talk about in a moment was um, called Dickens in Chancery and it's from 1914 and it's an account of a plagiarism a, a legal case that he brought against plagiarists which is a fascinating which particularly concerned Christmas Carol um, so an amazing array of books on him and one of the ones that we wanted to look at uh, today is Dickens and Christmas by Lucinda Hawksley. She is his great, great, great granddaughter. I think I've got that right, the number of greats. And this was published only in um, 2017. And it's a really fascinating book because it looks at how Dickens himself would have celebrated Christmas, um, how it was celebrated generally at the time that he wrote Christmas Carol. Um, but how his setting of that novel has entered our culture and how his vision of Victorian Christmas has guided sort of uh, popular cultural ideas about, about Christmas ever since and the amount that he actually created, you know, that, that, that wasn't there um, before. So, so I, I wanted to ask Joe actually, if, so you're obviously, you're very knowledgeable about Dickens and about A Christmas Carol, I think. Um, so you also read this Lucinda Hawksley book. Was there anything in it that surprised you or that you found particularly interesting? And I mean, what do you think in general it tells us about Dickens and Christmas? Yeah, well, um, absolutely. Yeah, you know, you, you can you can know as much as you think you know about a subject, and they'll always you'll always turn the page and be completely struck by something surprising. Um, but in terms of yeah, in terms of Hawksley's uh, fantastic book, um, there, it's just rife with with uh, fascinating and sort of striking elements. 
not just necessarily about Dickens himself and how he celebrated Christmas, but about sort of the context of the season in the 1840s and beyond and how sort of the general population of that, of that era uh, saw Christmas. So one, one thing that really struck me before we get onto Dickens himself is um, there's an anecdote about the first Christmas card, which was, which was uh, released around the sort of, maybe not the same year, but around the same couple of years as a Christmas carol. It was part of that sort of Christmas onslaught of the 1840s. And you might've seen it, the first Christmas card, is an image of a family at, de- uh, at, at, at a, a dining table. They're all kind of sort of smiling at the viewer uh, and sort of just yes. wishing them Merry Christmas. Well, it's, you know, you, you look at it through through today's lens, and it's, it's about as wholesome an image as you can get. But um, when it was when it was first released, it caused a massive public outrage uh, because because it depicted children drinking basically. So each. Oh, each gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so if you think something that wholesome for, from today's sort of can be uh, can be a source of that's something that really i guess really su- surprised me and it's full of it's full of uh, fascinating things like that yeah that that's really interesting in fact, that that's got um, a local collection as well i think because it was it was henry cole who i think had the idea for the first um christmas cards the, the idea of sending christmas cards and he was of course one of the founders of the um victoria and albert museum and the whole uh museum area in south kensington um yeah so that that's really fascinating and and um Joe, when, with, when we come to A Christmas Carol itself, which is obviously the, the book which connects Dickens so fundamentally with, with Christmas, um, what can you tell us about its publication and, and, and what are your own personal thoughts about why it's such an incredibly enduring and, and well-loved um, novella? Well, I think it's um, one of the main reasons for its sort of success, something we've both already touched on, is that it basically it hit the Christmas zeitgeist. It was it was very much a product of being in the right place at the right time. Um, Dickens is obviously known today as the, as you know as the film title suggests, the man who invented Christmas. And while that's not fully true, um, it, he was very much one of the one of the sort of elite uh, number of elements of the 1840s that gave us the Christmas that we know and love today. And Christmas was. Uh, as, as, as a celebration was very much sort of on the up in the 1840s. We had the Christmas card a few years down the line, the popularization of the Christmas tree would have come along as well. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think people, it, it came out just at the time where people were really looking to take the season seriously again. I think he knew that. And I think it's one of the reasons he uh, really put his sort of heart and soul into this book, writing it at a time when he really needed a big hit. And right. uh, we know, I think, um, sort of necessity uh, breeds creativity. But yes. also, fundamentally, it's greater than the sum of its parts. It's, you know, it's, it is, yes, the story of one man and his immediate kind of social and professional circle on one particular night in 1843. Mm. But it is, you know, each theme and each character in the book is an archetype that isn't restricted to just to one place in time. It's timeless. It's optimistic. Uh, it's as optimistic as any of Dickens' works get. And I don't think optimism ever really goes out of fashion, hence why it's kind of sort of endured to this day and, and is showing no signs of going anywhere. Uh, or being any less intrinsic to Christmas. I think that's that's absolutely true. Yes, I I, I think that's really interesting. And um, and uh, I also wanted to ask you about sort of an, another aspect of it, which is the. I mean, obviously Dickens had a, you know huge commitment to social reform and to trying to reform all the all the things that were very wrong in Victorian society, and that's very much part of a Christmas Carol. In fact, I think. Um, 
I think Lucinda Hawksley quotes him saying that that he wanted it to be a sledgehammer blow on behalf of the poor man's child. You know, he was he was trying to also say something really serious um, about uh, about the way society works. So, could, would you like to say a bit a bit more about that, Joe? Yeah, I mean, it's social reform. Yeah, it's um like, like yeah that that is a, that is a supreme quote that, that Hawksley puts. I think in the blurb of the uh, of the book as well as touching on it in the text. Um, and it does it does the job. It is a very short, sharp sort of indictment on on Victorian values of the day, as much as it is a cosy kind of timeless Christmas Christmas story that you know mm. with cheer and goodwill. But I think yeah, the urge for social reform is something Dickens never lost sight of, even when his primary motive was just for you know for creating a huge hit. It's rife in the prose. It's something that obviously most of the adaptations uh, does unfortunately lose because just by virtue of being a TV product production. Uh, but the prose itself. It's very much Dickens extremely laid bare as the narrator. I don't think there's any ambiguity that it's him talking to you through the text. It's, you know, reading it, you can almost imagine him sort of standing up at his desk and pounding the table as he speaks. There's some, of, there's some really savage, but ultimately, you know, great virtue kind of, kind of uh, turns of phrase in, in that. And then, and as I say, like each character is an archetype. Uh, you know, Scrooge is every politician and a businessman. Cratchit is every working man. Tim is every child. And the character of Fred, Scrooge's nephew, is very much Dickens's fictional surrogate, offering the strife and indignation of the intellectual kind of middle class elite uh, and sort of, you know, verbalising and, and giving context to the sort of, the, you know, the, the unacceptable conditions that, that sort of drove him to write the, to write the story. Yeah, um, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I know, so yeah, I was just going to, that, 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 that doesn't even um, sort of come on to the ghosts. Obviously, the, the sort of most celebrated part of the story, but they very pointedly, are representations of the past, the present, and the future, and that is another way Dickens sort of strives to make hammer home the point that his his message for social reform is timeless. It's not just kind of something you can do once a year. It's not just about giving someone a turkey on Christmas Day and saying sorry and giving them the day off. It's something you need to strive to do throughout the year. He says keep Christmas in your heart all the year round. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's kind of one of those um, one of those things that you know being a timeless Christmas story. Uh, it's nice for us to be reminded of it sort of once a year as we are kind of, you know, you can't really avoid a Christmas carol when December rolls around, which is, I think, which is one of the, one of the genius things about how it's enjoyed. Yes, I, I think that's, that's really, really true. And I, and I, and it's funny actually, because I, I sometimes think that, um, it almost has a bit of an undeserved reputation as you know people sometimes think of it as being you know quite sort of schmaltzy and and kind of sentimental and quite but it's got you know some really dark and and hard-hitting elements in Absolutely. terms of that social reform agenda i think you know the, the two children um ignorance and want you know that they're, they're really it, it's really quite powerful and disturbing how he presents that and that brings me on actually to i wanted to to talk to you about the the original illustrations which are very famous as well um and are by John Leach um and he was I think he was he was the principal illustrator for Punch magazine at the time and um in the first edition of the book they were they were coloured by hand which which meant that the book was very expensive to buy um and just to mention we also got biographies of leach in our biography collection they're very old ones i'm not sure if anything has been written about him more recently because we've got books about him from the 1880s and 1890s which i'm quite looking forward to having a, a look at but joe um how do you what what do you feel about those um those illustrations well that's the th that's the other thing that um you know you asked why why the book's 
endured why it was such a huge hit in, on its initial publication. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the illustrations are a, a huge, huge factor in the success of the book because, you know, we, 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 tend, we tend not to equate novels with pictures today, but back in the Victorian sort of era when, when the novel was very much the, the most affordable and sort of prolific source of family entertainment in much the same way that, the, you know, whatever, whatever's on TV uh, is for us today, it was really important for audiences, for families to be able to sort of put a face to the, to the text, as it were. And those images were a huge part in sort of visualizing, in that, you know, just that, an, an extra hand in what Dickens was attempting to do in, in sort of visualizing the season. Mm. And then, you know, they, Leach was a bit of a one hit wonder. He, he only worked with Dickens on that one text. He never really worked with him again. But in one fell swoop, he managed to give us the most quintessentially kind of enduring Dickensian images of all time, really. And they're still used as, uh, as visual cues, uh, not just for, you know, on Christmas cards or in sort of just in the general kind of popular culture around December, but they're, they're used in most adaptations of the, uh, of the, of the story. The, the image of, of, uh, of the ghost of Christmas present looking very much like Father Christmas in his, in his big green gown, you know, holding his horn of plenty. It's just, uh, it's about as yeah. Christmassy as it gets, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. Um, Joe, I was going to ask, what was it like working at the house where Dickens had lived? Did it make you feel closer to him? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most kind of uh, repeated kind of compliments the museum gets. It, it's, it's, it, it sounds obvious to say, but um, it does help to bring, you know, those being in the house to bring those timeless stories and ideas and themes and characters and back to one sort of very human, fallible, hardworking man um writing away in his study uh, you know each room is so expertly curated uh using the sort of fashions and and uh, you know what we knew about about victorian sort of fashions and styles of the time it's almost like you enter a room and you, you almost feel as like dickens charles or, or catherine even could have just walked out seconds before you entered it's really it really feels like very recently vacated space if not there over your shoulder as you're in there um it's it's a great it's a great museum. It's really it's really it's really great. And if you haven't visited uh, yet, then please do. Uh, it's it's doubly doubly so at, at December. He only lived there for two years, um, but I think history sort of shows that house uh, as the the sort of quintessentially Dickensian sort of place to visit because all, all of his other houses in London happen to have been demolished over the years. Uh, so uh, by default, Doughty Street is the one that wins out. But you know, only being there two years, he, some of the most momentous events of his life and his family's lives happened there as well so there was that as well yeah i mean i think there's a, a famous present sorry famous writer who lives in camden and i think that's where his wife had all of their children and their name escapes me for some reason is a hugely sort of famous playwright and writer and i've just gone i'm going to move on to the next question you mentioned that the charles dickens museum would mark the christmas season in various ways can you describe that for us and how did it evoke dickens a christmas uh, yeah, it's um, well, they they kind of uh, they 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 decorate the the house uh, in Victorian Christmas sort of fashions every every November December. If you picture going back to Leach, if you picture his illustration of um, of Fred, you know Scrooge's nephew's family Christmas, and Dickens's description of it, you walk into Dickens's living room in December uh, in Doughty Street, and you may as well have walked into that to that image because it is very much wow. It's, it's so evocative. But they also have obviously accepting the current situation. They do have events every year as well like in the evenings that really strive to evoke uh, Victorian Christmas sort of events so they have kind of ghost story readings Christmas carol readings uh, they have um, performances of a Christmas carol which take place throughout the house throughout different rooms um, last year I attended a reading uh, well I say reading it was actually a performer um, 
essentially regaling the entire the entirety of a Christmas Carol by heart. It was so impressive that um, obviously they can't quite do as much as, as they as they ordinarily can uh, this year. But um, but yeah, it's, it's it's fantastic. It's it's really it really is the place to be uh, at Christmas time if you are if you are into your Dickens or your Victoriana. <laughs> that sounds so so cool. Um, I'm very happy to be asking this next question. Um, obviously, Christmas Carol must be one of the most adapted novellas. Um, with films and plays galore and I was going to ask you both what's your favourite um, because uh, mine is The Muppets Christmas Carol because it's perfect obviously it's got singing in it um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how, how about you Claudia? Um, well yes I mean when I was um, when I was a child we had my parents had a, a record of it um, you know an old vinyl record which I think must have been from the 60s um, where the narrator was Bernard Miles and the music that they used was um, Vaughan Williams' variations on a theme of Thomas Tallis, um, which is one of my favourite pieces of music. It's oh, such a beautiful piece of music. Yeah, but the trouble is, still even now, when I hear that music, um, I still feel this slight sense of kind of dread, and because I was really quite terrified of this record as a child, you know, with the, with Marley's, you know, chains clanking and all of that. But yeah. And what about you, Joe? What's your What's your favourite adaptation? I'm going to have to echo Katie and and really go for the Muppets as well. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's, it's a staple of my December's every year. Um, probably the reason I'm so into Dickens in the first place. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> maybe filled with Dickin, uh, sorry, with Disney songs and and talking animals. But I think that aside, it it really does get like jokes aside. It really does get the spirit and the tone of the book right. Fantastic. Well, don't uh, to be honest. To I like that. I like um, uh, the uh, um, it's called it's called Scrooge. I think it's got Albert Finney in it. Yeah. Oh yes. Adaptation as well. But you know, I've seen so many, as I'm sure we all have. I think I do have yeah. a soft spot for the ones that sort of go on their go off on their own course and take a few liberties with the yeah. so you know Blackadder Blackadder's Christmas Carol is a favourite <laughs> starts off benevolent and ends up becoming more miserly and, and selfish as the excellent Scrooge as well with Bill Murray uh, where yeah. he's a TV executive going through the same kind of journey as Scrooge but in the modern day America right um, <laughs> I like uh, but I've always got time for, for an adaptation of a Christmas Carol <laughs> yes oh well I, I wanted um to just mention now one of the I, I mentioned it earlier on um one of the kind of you know we have a lot of books in the biography collection that are sort of like you know kind of curiosities in a way just just sort of very unusual um things one of which is from 1914 and it's by Edward T Jakes and the title it's got one of those long sort of title Charles Dickens and Chancery being an account of his proceedings in respect of the Christmas Carol with some gossip in relation to the old law courts of Westminster um and it's actually about a court case, so which I hadn't been aware of at all until I, I saw this book, um, where Charles Dickens uh, prosecuted two people who had produced a pirate edition of A Christmas Carol. Um, I think they called it A Christmas Ghost Story, and um, they were called uh, Richard Egan Lee, and then the other one had a very Dickensian name, he was John Haddock. Um, 
and they you know he took them to court and because what apparently happened obviously the situation with authors rights and stuff was was very different then and it was in fact something which Dickens campaigned about in his life and I think regarding um, plays, theatrical productions, people could more or less just, you know, put one on and, and that was sort of, that was allowed. And Dickens actually, you know, quite enjoyed a lot of them. But in terms of actually producing a book version, um, he did, you know, he, he obviously got very fed up about the fact that lots of people were making quite a lot of money out of, uh, out of A Christmas Carol by doing what these men did, which was produce their own um, version, I think, um, they just changed various names they changed Fezziwig to Fuzzywig and things like that um but their defense is quite funny when you when you read about it in this book because they actually rather than saying that you know it didn't bear any relation to a Christmas Carol they actually claimed that they were producing um a better version so they actually really felt that Dickens should be grateful because they'd um kind of rectified various faults and they'd added things like he talks about Tiny Tim singing a song and they'd actually written a song to include which they said was replete with poetry and pathos um, and also they talked about the fact that um, they were producing a cheap version because some people remarked on the fact that the book was really completely out of reach for poor people because it was a real luxury commodity with those hand-painted um, illustrations that we mentioned before. So, you know, even though it was talking a lot about poverty, it would not have been accessible to anyone who wasn't who wasn't pretty well off. Um, anyway, they lost their case, um, but they then went bankrupt. They declared themselves bankrupt. So Dickens ended up not getting anything out of them. And I think it, it sort of made him quite you know bitter about the whole process um so i just wanted to know whether you joe knew anything else about dickens and plagiarism because it was i think it was a really big issue wasn't it for him it was yeah and it's something that really dogged his career his professional life from till, till the day he died really it's something he knew, never really managed to stamp out in his lifetime because because of the kind of uh, the anemic kind of status of um of copyright law at the time it's only following his death in the, in the ensuing decades that copyright law was really kind of hammered home into what it has essentially become today and it was dickens that really started lobbying for that uh, specifically international copyright law um so on his mm -hmm. you know, he visited the us and he was quite quite dismayed as you say to to learn of how just how many reproductions of his texts and plays of of his texts not just the christmas carol but anything like from oliver twist to chimes um so he really lobbied for international copyright law which didn't exist uh, at the time he was working, but obviously does now. So you could, you could argue that he had a sort of starting hand in, in bringing that to fruition. But there was a really, there's a really interesting anecdote from, from Hawksley, uh, from her book actually, uh, regarding Dickens' final visit to the US, um, where he's quite literally running away from tax inspectors uh, <laughs> on his way to the, uh, to the ferry to leave the country for good, because you know on the grounds that there was such an abundance of, of unauthorized versions of his work going around the US that he felt paying tax on top of that would morally mm -hmm. be a step too far given that he wasn't profiting from from those versions um but yeah so like I say it's something it's something he never really managed to get away from uh in his lifetime um Thomas if you've heard of Thomas Peckett Prest he's the author of Sweeney Todd or he's the purported author of Sweeney Todd he actually oh, began right. plagiarist as well um uh, he's, he, he called himself Boss instead of Boz, uh, so B-O-S. 
Uh, but yeah, um, known for for Sweeney Todd, but also a plagiarist. So some of them did all right out of out of the uh, out of out of that. <laughs> but I think um, they, ultimately they, they won the plagiarist because you know we, mm. if you look at today's kind of landscape, the Kensian landscape, there's a new adaptation of a Christmas Carol every year. They're all different. Uh, so yeah, they were they were bound to be right eventually. Um, I think. Go, speaking of the the original plagiarists who argued that they do improve on the original, I think some of the adaptations that are out today do improve on the originals. Have, uh, mm-hmm. have you seen Armando Inucci's David Copperfield that came out last year? No, not yet. Oh yes, yeah, I enjoyed that. Yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal film. But it does it unapologetically makes a lot of liberties with the source material, and in most of those cases, I think it does improve upon what it changes. So. <laughs> Uh, I'm not not calling Alan, um, Iannucci a plagiarist by, by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> the modern yeah. equivalent, were. I think, I think the, the an element of their argument sort of sort of won out in the end. <laughs> it, may, it may have taken two hundred years, but yeah. Mm. Um, but the, the the important thing is that the man himself is very much remembered above all else uh, as the author, um, and you know so. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, it's it's interesting because Jake's is actually quite sort of sympathetic about um about the the pirate the, the the men who he took to court who Dickens took to court because he you know he sort of describes like you know there there were people who this was their job was to create pirate editions of things and they were often you know working for very small amounts of money some of them and you know obviously some people who distributed sold them could make lost money but the the actual sort of hacks who sat down and did this um he actually paints these two plaintiffs as quite sort of pitiful figures really this is really fascinating um i just wanted to clear up the title because um Claudia's um, audio just went a little bit awry in the introduction to the recommendation. So I'm going to clarify the book title was called Charles Dickens in Chancery, being an account of his proceedings in respect of a Christmas carol with some gossip in relation to the old law courts at Westminster. But it's always good at sort of, you know, reiterating it. Um, It was published in 1914 and it was written by Edward T. Jakes. I hope I've got that. That is correct. They really, I think they really liked their very long titles at that time, you know. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, and whilst we're on the subject of Christmas, uh, Claudia, um, any other honourable mentions in the collection you wanted to say? Well, yes. I mean, in terms of how, you know, how the kind of uh, the rituals of Christmas have been created, um, it, it, there are lots of people who, who had a hand in that. Um, and we have got books about them in the collection. Um, so, for example, if you think about uh, Christmas cake and Christmas pudding, um, there wasn't really, I think there were all sorts of different ways of making them and, and different and sort of different versions until the very famous, obviously, Mrs. Beaton, um, who who uh, was a you know really famous obviously Victorian woman writing about cooking and housekeeping and everything, and she is supposed to have perfected the recipe for uh, plum pudding and and the earliest recipe for Christmas cake. And we've got interesting books about her. Um, Henry Cole, who we talked about earlier on, who invented the Christmas card. Um, and then yes, we've got various people like uh, as well Queen Charlotte. Um, she brought the Christmas tree over from Germany. Um, it's often thought to be 
Prince Albert, but in fact it's it's known to be uh, Queen Charlotte, and uh, that was a that was something that became very very fashionable. The royal family made it fashionable, um, as I say, when it was brought over from from Germany. But all sorts of people, and also you know people from from later periods as well. Like we we did a display a couple of years ago about Christmas, and people who wrote some of our most famous Christmas hits, and people like Irving Berlin, and you know. Um, but generally, I could I could go on, but lots and lots of books about people connected with Christmas. Yes. Well, I'm delighted to hear all those recommendations. I'm sure that people will be clamouring for them over this period. Um, uh, as usual, all of our biographies, um, all 90,000 of them approximately, I'll say approximate, from <laughs> our biography store, they're all ready to be borrowed. Um, it's currently Select and Collect at RBKC Libraries. Uh, so you can order online via the catalogue or the app using your account details. Um, you can email us or just give us a ring. Uh, just so what I'd like to say is thank you so much, Claudia, and a huge thank you, Joe, for joining us today. Both your wonderful knowledge has made this a really special experience. Um, and what I'd like to say um, on behalf of the library service is I hope you all have a lovely Christmas and um, I hope it's just as joyful or make it as joyful as you can. Thanks for listening. Very well said, Katie. Merry Christmas one and all. Merry Christmas. <laughs>